Hello and welcome to May I Have This Dance, a podcast from the Human Awareness Institute or Hi Among Friends. We're here because we love having real, rich, juicy conversations with people. We strip down with the people we interview, figuratively and only sometimes literally, to the undercurrent of what it means to be human through the lens of love, intimacy, and sexuality. As an organization, Hi is a place to explore and embrace our humanness. Obviously, a podcast can't replace our workshops, but we do hope that in these interviews, you're able to catch a glimpse of who we are and what we do. Shall I get started with the interview? Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to episode nine, where Kate and I get to talk to Bob DeRozier. Bob has been part of the high community for over 30 years, taking workshops, serving on team and working as a staff member. This one was a fun one for me, as Bob and I work really closely together every day. Bob has a charm and a quirkiness about him that I find really endearing. And we discovered that he has a lot of valuable things to say about a wide range of topics. Well, that's true. Uh, We cover topics ranging everything from healthy parenting to BDSM. (laughs) I feel like this episode doesn't need much more introduction after that. Right? Well, let's start the music and let's do this. So, Bob, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Would you tell our listeners your name, your preferred pronouns, and where you're from? Uh, my name is Bob. My preferred pronouns are he, him. Where am I from? I'm currently living in Sunnyvale. Um, I sort of identify as coming from, I grew up in Southern Oregon and with time in Hawaii, so I identify with all of that. But I've lived in California for a few decades now. Awesome. Coming from, did you say Sunnyville, California? Sunnyvale. Sunnyvale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, Bob, you and I are colleagues and friends within High. We work together pretty closely. Uh, Bob, we were just joking before we started the podcast rolling that Bob is kind of a unicorn within High. He he can transform into anything you need. He is a man of many talents and ends up playing a lot of different kinds of support roles within High. So I know a little bit about you, uh, and I have some ideas of kind of where I want to take the conversation uh, to get into some of your background and and who you are as an adult and within high. Um, but before I do, I I would really love to start with talking about your childhood. Uh, this is an area that I know nothing about with you, and uh, it feels like a good place to start. So. Would you just tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like and anything you want to share about how you grew up? Yeah, so I grew up in Southern Oregon for the most part. Um, Both my parents were teachers. And so we we had that, you know, I often had the thing of going, of uh, at least when I was in grade school, going to school with the same place that my mom was teaching, which kind of creates weird relationships with teachers at, at times. Um, it was a fairly normal, I don't, I don't know what's normal. It was not an abusive growing up. I um, keep digging into little bits and pieces of it and how that affected me and um, what I want to do about that. But we were, um, so one piece of it that I remember is that, that my mother's um, from Hawaii and, and it was important to her that we experienced that culture. So we would go back for summers, which is nice when you're, have teachers schedules um, and spend time with my grandparents. We, and we were able to get a sabbatical and spend a year there. Um, 
little bit longer than that, which gave me a sense of diversity. It gave me a sense of belonging. It gave me a sense of um, meeting my academic peers because what you really wanted was for us to go to a really good school and experience what that was as opposed to the local public school, which was okay, but um, not stellar. So we got to go to a really stellar school there. Um, I don't know what to tell you about childhood stuff. There's there's so much and so little kind of together. Well, so you've told us a little bit about your mom. She was a school teacher. What was your relationship to her like? I'm still sorting that out because it's still evolving. Um, my sense is we got a lot of the Chinese culture of um, wanting to do well. And... I think she was holding the family together more. So she was running, doing more parenting than, than my dad was. Um, but, and her growing up was that she learned kind of what the rules were for society, not by the environment in which she grew up in, but by reading um, advice and glamour, or I don't know what the magazines were, but, but say glamour, um, articles about, these are the um, etiquette rules and this and that. So um, some of her perceptions, how the world works were a little stilted. Um, yeah, for example, I remember we were growing up and a lot of our friends are going out and playing softball. And so they're in these little leagues and we didn't figure it out for a couple of years. Like how come they're playing these games and we're not, it's like, no one ever told her this is what you do with your kids. And and money may have been a part of it too. So the first time we ended up playing softball, we were like two or three years behind everybody else. Um, you know, not a big thing, but but kind of indicative. Yeah, it was just culturally kind of not what was the norm in your family. Is that what I'm hearing? That there was... Yeah, it's more of an academic family. Um, puns were really flashing around the table a lot. There's a lot of wordplay. There was a lot of... Um, family discussion at, at dinner. Did you have siblings? Um, I still do. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, I'm the oldest of three. So I got to, I got to be the experiment. And I think what happened, which is true of a lot of firstborns is that um, I kind of spent more time with adults than with kids. And I was the one that they got to make, experiment on and make mistakes and figure out, oh, these rules are too strict. Let's, let's ease up on the next kid. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but it also meant I had no expectations ahead of me because my brother um, and my sister, to that extent, I was really good in school. Um, and so they just, they had to deal with that expectation and, or find their own niche. And I think that was definitely a challenge for them. Not saying that they weren't bright because they are, but, um, the stand, the bar was so high. Um, like I, I know that one, one math teacher, um, when he's talking to my mom years later, said that I was the brightest student he ever had coming through his classes. Wow. That kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm not surprised by that knowing you, but, um, so you, I hear you talking a little bit about the values that were present in your family, that there was this value placed on intellectual pursuit were there other values that became intrinsic to who you are that you still carry to this day? Or did you kind of redefine yourself at any point along the way? Talk a little bit about uh, that. There's, there's some of both. Uh, 
there's a, a value of family and connection of family that I don't think I quite realized or articulated at the time. And I don't think my dad was good at um, verbalizing, but the the sense is, you know, that that's the tight unit. You need to stick together with that unit. And that was the value they wanted to convey. Um, I, I don't know how, how well that conveyed as opposed to anything else. Um, I know one of my dad's cousins came by and visit who was a, a much rougher sort of person. Um, and he was like, families is who we are. We're proud to be this family. And, and I'm like, whoa, a little too heavy on the cheerleading. But but there was also the message of uh, sticking up for your family and, and taking care of them. Um, so some of all of that. So, okay. So you're a fantastic parent. Uh, tell us more about your, your family structure and how it evolved and what it means to you now. Oh, um, so I've, I've got a couple people I'm seeing outside the, traditional marriage structure so let me back up a little bit in what happened was when i first started um seeing my my wife current wife um she was dating other people and at some point made a decision that i was more interesting or better or whatever than than whoever else um <clears throat> but we're also within high and one of the things that was clear to us was that we couldn't be everything for each other however much we wanted to, it's just not humanly possible. Yeah. <clears throat> and, sorry. Um, within our marriage vows, we didn't write the stuff about we're going to forsake all others. And we didn't have the obedience clauses. So we wrote our own vows. We did it as a, um, as a dialogue, a conversational structure, rather than a, I say A, you say B, you say A kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is a more interesting and worked better, but it also allowed us to choose which values we had. Um, anyway, so so within that context. And that was conscious at the time that part of it was that you wanted that openness and, and uh, lack of control within your marriage. I wanted that freedom and support. Mm-hmm. Well said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to be in the situation of if I'm <clears> – <throat> If I'm at workshop and I want to think about doing something with someone, I don't want to have to go to the payphone at that time and make a call and say, hey, are you available? Can I do this with this person? <laughs> no, <laughs> that was just right. I just want to have the general agreement of of um, where we are and knowing we will act with integrity. We'll check in and, and tell each other about whatever happened and work from there. Huh. Um, it seemed a much more robust it's quite humorous to think about trying to navigate uh, an open relationship or whatever you want to call it, you know, these kind of more complex relating situations with the lack of technology. That's such an interesting twist on that, that I hadn't, I haven't lived that. So that's interesting uh, point that, you know, we have such instant communication now. And I think communication is in oftentimes very central to these kinds of explorations, but uh, you know, rewind 20 years and, you know, things look different. Mm-hmm. Very, very much, very much on the technology side and the way it affects interactions, certainly. Mm. Um, so it's kind of baked in from the beginning of how you guys wanted to create a marriage together. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not to say that we didn't have our ups and downs about, you know, you're saying this person and what do I feel or, or, or one of us has a partner and the other one doesn't. Um, so there's a certain amount of, of jealousy of experience, but we always come back to, um, who, who do you love? Who's, who's going to stay, right? Who's going to, um, not abandon? How do you know? Um, and have your agreements wanna, changed over time? Not really. No, hmm. no, she's pretty adamant. She's going to be my last wife. <laughs> um the that sounds like a delightful threat there <laughs> well it is um one of the things i was contemplating recently is i was listening to a, a, a marriage counselor therapist person talking about clients that came in and the question was well how how do you know whether they're they're going to break up or not and the response was well if you ask them why do you stay with this person and the answer is um, money, kids, home, that kind of thing. Oh, real world logistics, basically. That was not a good sign. If they said, because I love them, just that, right? It didn't, it didn't matter what anything else was. If they said that, then he said, yeah, then, then we've got something to build on and work with. And, and they could actually have productive um, reconnecting sessions. There's actually something really interesting you mentioned earlier about how how you talk to your teenagers. And I think something that came through for me is that you at some point recognized that there was a shift. You know, when they moved out, it was a new relationship. And I wonder if there's a parallel there between uh, the way you experience relationships and the and the changes within there and just straight up communication. I feel like um, I never, you know, materially thought about my parents in any different way after I moved out. But of course, our relationship changed. And I, I was just thinking how interesting it would have been to have a conversation at that point and say, hey, here's a set of things we used to do and used to be responsible for. And, you know, how would you like that to change? How is that going to change? That just kind of jumped into my head, and I wondered if uh, if that was something you had done consciously, or if that just kind of happened organically over time. It's I think it comes more from the philosophy of how I look at it, because um, I often it's not strictly it's not quite a peer relationship, although it's much easier to relate to them as adults now than than it was then. But it's also the the thought about empowering them, no matter what age they are. Um, but but I also do the same thing with talking to friends who are teaching school or their kids or um, people I'm supporting and at whatever, right? Is how can I empower this person? And, you know, kind of what are we working towards? So that, that piece of it never changes. It changes in, in what the empowerment looks like. Um, a boss of mine gave me a really useful piece of advice, which was that he knew that, that at some point his kid is going to be in trouble and going to need to reach out for help. And his goal was to make sure that that kid always had a clear line of communication open. So when that moment happened, that they had someone to come back to. Yeah, that's really clear and and supportive. I, I'm curious, I'm going to push you just a little bit here because this is starting to feel really lovely to me, which is this idea of empowering people. And you applied it across lots of different types of relationships. It's a way that you orient yourself to other people and relationship with other people. What does it mean to empower someone 
How do you know when you feel empowered? Um, Speak a little bit about that. Topic. So empowering. I hadn't really thought and articulated this out. Is um, is often giving them capability or encouraging them to acquire skills and capabilities that they don't currently have or don't think they mm-hmm. have. So whether it's taking that first bus ride, oh, that's probably a good example. So go, you know, and a lot of us do this around here. Um, when you go to school, you don't take dedicated school buses. You you go in public transit. So on their first day of high school, or actually before their first day of high school, what we did is we got on the bus. We showed we we talked through the whole process of this is you pay the money, you sit here, you look at this landmark, you see this landmark, you see this art. This is the clue to get off, right? So then they have that narrative. They've you know it's the, um, you know see it, do it, mm-hmm, teach it mm-hmm. model. Um, it's also seeing, oh, if you can do this and, and I'll encourage people to do, you know, whatever the scary thing is, but also want to look at the fear of what's behind that. Um, what, what's, and just articulating it. Like what's the worst that's going to happen if you do this? Well, maybe the waiter's going to think badly of me. Are you ever going to see the waiter again? No. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. So. Um, but empowering people can also be being with them when they're scared or creating situations that are right on the edge. Um, if I'm doing SM kind of stuff, I may take somebody to someplace that they thought was scary and say, okay, this is what's going on. This is what's going to happen. Um, be with me, be really intensely with me. But, but I also know in that circumstance, I can provide a container that can hold them. Absolutely. So yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this for a second. So um, this is a world in which you are right on that edge of fear, right? There's some kind of element of fear or risk perhaps, and you're playing with what, walk me through what kind of is in the space and how you navigate it. (laughs) Uh, It's a broad space. So it's more than fear. Um, A lot of it's sensation, but it's also finding out ways to express parts of myself that are not not always socially or societally accepted. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how does that show up? We usually. You're saying that like you, you, there, it's almost in this space that it's not always societally accepted. You can feel that in the moment. Well, um, so there's some stuff about power exchange. There's some stuff around, um, word choice or behavior that that's not always um favorably portrayed in the movies or tv um so so to a certain extent to um i'm aware of that and and like you know what would the neighbors think kind of voice in the back of my head sometimes Um, but then the neighbors often wouldn't think happily if i was running around the house naked so (laughs) 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 some things aren't their business Mm -hmm. um but in terms of playing in the space i mean it it, it's the the classic venn diagram of what am i interested in what excites me what excites you where can we play together um where did you have a, a maybe or where haven't you played um and finding ways to either both of us explore that or one of us explore that and um 
and that can be anything from a new toy to um, a, a different level of structure in, the, in a power dynamic um, in terms of rules or no rules <clears throat> or words or no words or light or um, sensation. So um, I have a friend, you know, we're in our late 20s and she, so on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, at least to, to me, uh, she had never played with a vibrator with a, with a partner before and felt that she was somewhat difficult in bed. Like she, she really struggled to have orgasm with men and just kind of had accepted that that's just how it was going to be. And, you know, she was fine with just having orgasms alone with her vibrator and that she didn't really, she, she really had a lot of fear around even introducing that idea. And she and I talked about it qu quite a few times where she was trying to get the courage to ask her partner if she could use this vibrator with him. And, um, you know, I think what came up for her was this sense of like, this is very private. There's some shame perhaps. Um, and then it did come up and she finally did experiment with it. And like on one hand had this pleasure, but on the other hand, really it was a stretch and it was like this, um, you know, it, it confronted her ideas about what sex was. And this felt really tame to me. I, you know, it just like, it, it was, uh, you know, of course I, I met with her, met her with empathy and support and encouragement and whatever she needed. But, you know, it struck me as like, wow, this is, this is really challenging for you. This is interesting because it's not for me. Um, do you ever find yourself in that position and how do you navigate that? And like, do, are you often in a, in the role of kind of encouraging people to step outside their comfort zone? And do they share with you if, if these deeper feelings of shame or uh, what have you come up for them as they're experimenting? Um, I know someone in my life at the moment, not one of my partners, who's kind of in that place right now of how do you navigate it? But that's that's a, not my story to tell. Um, but I have seen, the sh and that's where I go back to the fear. You know, like what do you, what's the worst that's going to happen and who do you trust and how do you build trust? And there's a lot of sexual shame that's kind of puzzling to me, like really? But it's there. I'm glad I don't run into it too much. Um, ask that question again. Well, um, so you said it, it, it. You do notice that shame comes up for some of your partners or your playmates. Um, it sounds like perhaps that's not something that comes up for you very often. So you know you can take it however you want. I'm interested in that edge of like trying new things and what does that bring up for us on a deep level, either yourself mm. or others. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to trust. Um, you, and, and I'll give the, my usual example, which is that I, I trust some people with emotional stuff. I, some, I trust some people to fly airplanes. I trust some people to do surgery. <laughs> Those groups don't always intersect. Uh -huh. Well said. <laughs> so I'll trust them to be who they are. Part of my job is to figure out who they are, possibly in relationship to me. And if I'm, I'm playing with a partner on something that's scary, then we'll talk about the fear and, and we'll set it up such if it gets really scary, we stop and we just hold and process the fear. But I have confidence that I can do that. And we have some experience of me being able to do that. And I, I think you need to have that competency before you start playing with sensations because 
people have all these emotional triggers. And, um, sometimes the way you find out you have one is you you hit that button. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, interesting. I think that that process of stopping and holding and processing the fear is something that's kind of elusive for a lot of people. And I think that it's the unknown and the not the the lack of trust in oneself or others to navigate it is part of what maybe holds people back. Could we just like experiment with that for a moment? What what might you say? So like let's say, you know, Bobby Jane says, "Hey Bob, like I've got this fear that's come up. Uh, I don't know if I want to do that." What might you say? Wow. Um, so it depends on what my relationship with this person is in terms of partly what I say, because I like to tailor it to them. But I might say, um, you know, w- what do you know about this fear? Like, where do you think it came? Partially just so I have a sense of where they're coming from. So I want to find out if it's related to other things. Like if they're afraid of being touched in a certain way, is that related to abuse or they don't know? Because that, you know, if it's got an abuse history, it's a different trigger um, and, and sort of a, a potentially larger explosion. Um, so I would say let's let's do this in some safe contained way like i'd find baby steps in a way to approach it and we talk about it and so so instead of saying uh, well so instead of just like if their knee is the, the trigger instead of touching a knee i'd say okay we're going to play with this and for the next set period of time so it's going to end relatively soon and for this i'm warning you or warning um forecasting <laughs> i'm going to be t- touching your knee And then the other thing I do is I monitor pretty closely. Mm. Um, one of the pieces of my background we didn't touch on is I pick, picked up an NLP certificate at one point. And a big part of that training was how to pay attention to people. Yep. And I think it kind of refined my ability to just sort of read body language more. What kind of training was this, Bob? Sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, neurolinguistic programming, NLP. Oh, okay. Okay. And I've... Um, I grew up in a high context family, right? So often things would happen and, and we didn't say them explicitly. You just kind of look at it. Oh no, this is what's happening and, and kind of go from there. Um, and my wife didn't. <laughs> so I'm often told, use your words, talk about what's happening. But I kind of trust my ability to read it. And, and in, so in these situations, I, I think I'm more skilled than many at, just reading the emotional context of what's going on and telling, like, are you close to an edge? Are you, um, something happened within you. Would you mind telling me about it when someone says, Oh, I didn't know that that showed. Well, you were looking out and processing stuff inwards. You weren't watching your face. That is really powerful. I think that is a beautiful gift to be able to give someone. Um, and as, as you're saying that there's something that's, um, kind of, sprung into my mind, which is you seem to have had a number of wonderful journeys in, in interesting directions uh, and that you have a huge, deep uh, well of being able to surprise others. Have you surprised yourself in this journey at all? And if so, how? Uh, surprise. That, that implies a suddenness to things. Um, I will say that at one point, oh, quite a while ago, I was like, why would people do do 
BDSM stuff, why would someone want to experience pain? Like pain just hurts. Like, why would you do that? And now I find myself on the other side of the conversation saying, this is why you might want to do that. Or, or I might be, want to be the one inflicting it, or it's just a sensation and it can lead to whatever. And, and it's just as important to me to, to have some idea about the neurochemistry of what's going on as it is to have the experiential references for it and say, yeah, I, I get that this is scary for you, but um, this in some ways brings me joy and connection. And I, I find it odd that, that the same thing that scares one person brings joy and connection to somebody else in the same room. Well, I feel like a lot of this kind of stuff has to do with gateways, right? If you are if you're in a heightened state of emotion because you are scared or you are or you have some sort of an emotional response, that also means that you know as that uh, is released or as that is. Uh, treated with respect by the other person, you do open for a deep intimacy that is 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 kind of magical in that in that moment, um, or at least as far as I understand that. Does that ring true for you? That's a, I think there's a strong element of that. Um, I know that that there's some of that. Um, what are they, I don't remember what the words are, but but there are people who, um, when they go through adverse experiences together, bond. And so in a way, this is kind of creating that same level of emotional, physical, biochemical um, state of I, I'm, I'm here, I'm anticipating something happening. It's, it's sweet torture. It's really good. It's bad. It's whatever. Um, and, but I know I'll be taken care of or I'll know I'll be in contact with this person. So it's about finding, finding that, um, using the physical world to induce the state to create the connection and 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 again some people do things for connection right or or expression of who they are or power exchange whatever um other people do it just to have hey i, I like to do this it feels good to me and not so much care about the other person but that's not my style it is also interesting to hear you say that, like in your childhood, you're talking about that there was a lot of um, intellectual pursuit and a lot of, um, you know, thinking and a lot of brain work. And I hear that in the way you talk and in our previous interactions and stuff. But it feels like you also have a black belt in the in the emotional and in the in the kind of connective and uh, and in that side of things, do you think those developed in parallel or, or was one of them harder than the other for you? Um, I, I, I think that they may have developed in parallel, but it was at very different rates. Um, um, if I think back to what I was known for when I was in my late teens, early twenties, um, it was probably less about compassion, um, and more about uh, brilliance in some sense so i've been working on that one and and kind of getting to know it and it's also been influenced by sort of who i've been with and how they treated me when i thought it was challenging for whatever reason um, but a lot of the work i've done within high has been about well a combination of compassion and empowering and finding edges and do you want to cross it and and even just getting used to the idea of oh there's a cliff practice jumping off the cliff um but i'm, I'm also known as a pretty considered risk taker 
And people sometimes say, no, Bob never takes risks. Like, no, that's not true. I look at them and then I decide which ones I want to take. And if I can mitigate them, I do. But it's not that I don't want to take it. It's that I, I often do this, this trade-off. And, and that's, people don't always see that. They just say, oh, he's saying no. Well, it's because I don't like the downside of that other thing and that you don't see or don't care about. Tell me a little bit about your relationship to high. It doesn't have to necessarily stay within the confines of your relation, you know, the work that you've done within high, but did you come to high for any particular reason or what attracted you there? And uh, why have you spent so many years diving down deep into the emotional world within high? Mm-hmm. Um, I got there basically because I wanted to belong. Um, I had some friends who were told by their dentist that, hey, there's this workshop, go do it. And they went and they're like, wow. And then I went to a bunch of parties, but I didn't commit to being at the workshop. And so we were, we were having <coughs> dinner one evening. And I asked another friend who was there, like, so why did you go? Was The answer was, well, someone said, do you trust me? Do this workshop. And so my friend turns to me and says, do you trust me? I'm like, ah, really? You're playing that Are we card? going there? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'll do the workshop. Um, and I, I went, you know, I did a workshop. And two weeks later, I did the next workshop. And then basically, I did a workshop a month for like 10 years, plus or minus. Um, what I found there was that, that the people that I wanted to connect with, I eventually could. And the group that was ahead of me, I thought I'll never be as cool as like the slightly older couple kids. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm one of that group now. I don't, how did that happen? And what I've liked is the diversity of human experience I get to see. Um, not just sexual stuff, but, but people from somewhat different walks of life um, in ways that I might not necessarily run into them otherwise but also finding that community of um, wanting to change the world and make it more accepting, make it more easy to navigate for the rest of us. Um, that's just huge. And, and my idea would be that a lot of, well, so what I've done is, is a lot of my social life is within high. It's people I, I've met through high or are currently in high or, and, and eventually if people are close to me. We send them there. That's just what we do because it's transformed a lot of, of who I am, how I relate, where I'm comfortable. Um, not so much the language usage, but the, the thought process of who are we, who are we responsible for? Um, how do we open up? What, what, what is it okay to say? What truth do we tell? Um, so. It's so juicy, isn't it? It's just there's so much there. There's so much to unpack, and I think that's reflective of the larger uh, life that we're all living. I suppose is a good way to you know sum it up. <laughs> that there's there's a lot to explore. Bob, if there was one question that we haven't asked you yet that you wish we had, mm-hmm. what would it be? Hmm. Wow. I'm not, 
it feels like there's something around BDSM that we need to, to touch on. I'm not quite sure what. Um, like, what am I known for? Or what have I done? And, um, how do I get there? Because, yeah, and, and maybe it's, well, it's just, I, I just want to affirm that you're willing to continue this, that part of the conversation. Cause I think it's such, um, you know, if, if open relationships were, were last generation's taboo topic, I think that probably is the current taboo topic, uh, around BDSM and what that means. Mm-hmm. And man, how does that fit into a consult, uh, uh, consent culture and all of that. So, um, can we touch on that? All right. That's that's a question sure. I have is yeah, how how do we understand this in the context of wanting to empower women to have clearer boundaries, women and men, um, to be more open and communicative about what their boundaries are? How does that fit in with a, a world where you're taking choice away, presumably? I, I imagine that's really not the right characterization of BDSM, but set me right. So um initially it's it, it's uh, all about consent like who 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 are you working with do you trust them to actually know what's going on and keep their word and say and be able to articulate it so you know the the more edgy you are with things the more clear you have to be about what you're doing and how you're getting there so it kind of forces the consent so in some ways in a way hyper consensual focused that's kind of interesting yeah mm-hmm. Um, the, sorry, I had a, I had a train of thought and I'm, I'm losing it. Um, where can I go? Oh, the, so the, it's not about taking choice away. It's about agreeing that certain things are going to happen or, or here's a, a boundary within which we're going to play for a while. And some people like the idea of being surprised and not knowing what's going to come next and knowing that we can do things that, that bring a lot of joy, release a lot, lot of oxytocin, release endorphins, um, get away from your daily life or experience something that some emotional state that we hadn't normally done. Um, it also gives, a, a, at least within the sexual aspects of it, a lot more variety to what can be done. Um, it's just more a more creative, bigger field to play in for me. More variety is that um, one of the the compelling motivations for you? Is variety? Uh huh. Variety and exploration. I mean, it's not static, and pretty much every encounter is different. I don't hit that kind of routine. Oh yeah, it's 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 Sunday. At, 453 553 it's time to break out the <laughs> is there whatever. always a component of pain or is it more diverse than that it's more diverse than that um it, it can be pain it can be um it could be i mean there's a, there's an element of power exchange so there can be some element of restriction there can be some element of um obedience or navigation there it can be something as oh we're we're doing this thing which we have and we know and like if we're out in public and you're wearing this uh piece of jewelry or collar or whatever that we know what that means no one else does so we'll feel more bonded and closer because of that so it's not about 
pain per se, but it is about relationship and, and in some sense crafting the relationship of the moment. Um, like, um, for instance, bondage is not necessarily about pain, but it is about some level of restriction. But it can also be a really beautiful body harness that you just kind of wear. It doesn't restrict much of anything, but it just feels different. I'm just intrigued by how you discovered this world in the first place. Did you have a, a mentor or a curiosity or was this something that made you go, hey, I there there is a world here that or there's a forest here I would like to walk into and see what happens. Oh, uh, it's a complex life journey in some ways. What happened initially? Well, I don't I don't know when my fantasies started, which is a different conversation. But I remember when I was in just starting to, to date, and I was dating this woman who was older than I was and going to college. So I went up to go visit her. And one of the books that she was reading for her classes was the story of O. So I got to read that, you know, keep me busy while she was working on her schoolwork. Um, I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, so that kind of gave me a background, some background for like what was possible in the world or, or the way people thought. Um, and then I didn't do much with it. And then I ran across someone who, who did have a more SM background. So, oh, here, we're in my bedroom. Which of these things are SM related? I, I didn't know, but now I know how to pick them out and what that would mean. So I got a lot of encouragement to try this, both from um, on both sides of it. Of it. Um, and then doing my usual research thing, which uh, um, this path I recommend for a lot of people is I read the book SM 101. I went to a lot of classes with the local Society of Janets, different things, went to um, weekends where they teach a bunch of classes and just and did a bunch of reading, talking to people, going to play parties, being, finding people that I knew in common that were doing this and kind of hanging out with them. So it, it, it was a slow, gradual, but kind of thorough yeah, throw for me. I don't know. <laughs> Other people might do more. Um, Part of survey of the landscape and what can I learn? Because I always wanted to increase my skills and know like where do I want to play and how can I play safely? So I want to know where it's going to break because one of my big questions through life is always how is this going to break? And I don't necessarily need to do something about it. Sometimes I do, but but that's one of the lenses I, I use to look at my world through. So if I know how it's going to break, then I can say, uh, play safely in a way. so I don't have to worry about it in the moment like okay this is covered my partner doesn't have to worry about it because I know I, I approach life that way um, that is such a wonderful conscientious yeah. way of taking that on I think yeah well <laughs> there's there's something about book learning that helps there's something about classes that help but there's a lot to be said for learning from other people's experience but you need to be able to take that experience and, and have something on your own side to, that it echoes with it, that you know uses those mirror neurons. I think that is a perfect place to yeah. uh, to end on, actually. That is a wonderful, a wonderful sentiment, I think. We have one final question that we really love asking people, which is, um, what is the one song that you can't not dance to? Oh, actually, it's not so much a song as it's more of a, a bit of a genre, a couple of genres. 
Um, so one of the things I did at one point in my life was working at Renaissance Fair. And yeah. I was working with a, uh, a bunch of mercenaries. <laughs> a mercenary troop. <clears throat> and so we, what we do before walking in is we'd, we'd form up and the bagpipes would start playing. So when I hear the bagpipes, I always have this joyous feeling of, you know, we're going to have fun, right, be with my friends and play dress up and do this. Mm-hmm. So, so when the bagpipes go on, I'm like, it takes me back to that moment of, of being ready to go. The pipes come in. We, we follow in, follow the pipes in. Uh, so that's, that's a piece of it. It's just a lot of um, traditional Irish, Scottish um, music to a certain extent and a lot of dead tunes grateful dead stuff because robert hunter died recently like yesterday or something a couple days ago and so that was also a place where people would be a lot of of dancing and and kind of moving to to music and feeling it viscerally so not just uh, that's nice here uh, let's let's have a simple sit down and have some applause but like really taking it in and having an emotional experience with it Awesome. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been just a complete pleasure for me and for Haya, I assume, uh, to chat with you and hear about your life and what you've explored. And I think you went into some really awesome topics. I I hope we can have you on again and get even deeper into it because it was just juicy. Thank you. You're welcome. I think it'd be fun. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Bob. Have a good one. For more information about the Human Awareness Institute or our workshops, visit our website at hi.org. That's H-A-I dot org. Thank you so much for listening to May I Have This Dance. It was a pleasure to have you with us. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.